every Sunday before hearing the scripture reading, we pray for illumination. And I, I love the name of the prayer, illumination. And I kind of get the picture that it's almost like the word is like a light that shines into the darkest crannies of our hearts and helps us to hear and to listen, and, and then God speaks to us. And so when we have this prayer, we're praying that God's word would light up um, whatever God is saying to us today. It would be made known to us. So let's pray that that would happen. Christ, be our light. Shine through the darkness into our hearts today. That in hearing your word, we may know you and know of your deep love for us. Speak, Holy Spirit. We are listening. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And from the Gospel of John. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, Teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come to the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. on hearts, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, use us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts what good word you may have to hear, um, you may have for us to hear today. Amen. Where is it in the moment in the story that gets you? What moment in the story gets you that fascinates you, bothers you, troubles you, thrills you, interests you? or otherwise jumps out to meet you? This is a question posed by the Reverend Dr. Anna Carter Florence. It's a question in a series designated to help preachers listen to scripture and write a sermon. And I share this question weekly with the Journey with Jesus small group and with the staff at Linwood as we look through the scripture passages each week. What's the moment in the story that gets you? This week, there has been a no doubt in my mind about which moment in the story sticks out to me. It's been hitting me in the face over and over again and circling around from my head to my heart to my head. It's comforted me, 
pestered me and intrigued me. And if I could freeze this moment for you in a painting or a scene, I would. The moment is this. The moment where Mary, the second sister we hear about in the story, meets Jesus. She comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. How do you imagine Mary saying this line? For as long as I've heard this story, which has been for many, many, many years, I've always imagined Mary coming to Jesus with deep despair and sadness. And out of her sadness, I imagined her saying this in despair. But this past week in Journey with Jesus, one of our wonderful participants brought up the idea that when Mary said this line to Jesus, she could have been furious or irate. That made so much sense to me. Because in the part of the passage prior to what we read today, Mary actually sends word to Jesus, asking him to come see her brother when he's still sick. And Jesus decides to take his time and stay a couple extra days before visiting Mary. I'm going to read you a little bit of this passage so you hear it. It's um, the first part, starting at John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days and then said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. In hearing this, it makes sense to me that Mary would be furious when she sees Jesus. Mary made a request of Jesus, and Jesus did not follow through in the way Mary wanted or requested. This idea of Mary being furious when she said this to Jesus changed the story a bit for me. I realized Mary's question or statement, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died is a variation of the question that perhaps we all have asked once in our life. Where are you, God? Or, where were you, God? Perhaps you or someone you know has prayed fervently for something, whether that be something for themselves or for the world, and that prayer was not answered in the way that it was expected to be. An example might be someone who prays for healing and is not healed, or someone who prays for peace and there is still strife in their family. At that moment, someone may ask the question, where are you, God, or where were you, God? I believe this is the question that Mary is asking when she is face-to-face with Jesus. There are many people in my life who have asked a variation of this question, 
including myself. I think of my friend whose um, entire family when she was in college was killed in a car accident. Or I think of mothers who have prayed for a baby and yet wait without hope of conception or have had various miscarriages. I think of my seminary professor who is diagnosed with cancer that does not have a cure. Does it not make sense in moments like these to ask the question, where are you, God? I hope that by even naming it today, you feel some solidarity with Mary, who responded to Jesus with either deep sadness or despair or furious anger. Truthfully, in freezing this scene, there's even some good news to me in hearing of a biblical character who had the tenacity and audacity to approach Jesus in this way. But perhaps the best news is how Jesus responds to her. I want you to take a moment and to imagine how Jesus might respond to someone really angry and desperately asking, where are you, Jesus? Why weren't you here? Some potential responses that caught up in my mind when I was thinking through this sermon were that Jesus might match her anger or judge her for her lack of faith. And I was surprised that those responses came up in my mind because I know they're not theologically correct, but they came up all the same. And I think these ideas popped into my head because I've heard things like this from other Christians. <laughs> because when some of my friends have asked the question, where is God, other Christians have responded to them by saying, oh, don't say that, don't say that. You need to trust God more, have more faith. Or anger is sinful, don't be angry. I'm sure you can think of some more. Now, if I didn't know the rest of the story and how it ended, there would be a part of me that would wonder if Jesus would respond with these Christian responses I've told you. But the best news of all, the best news of the story to me is how Jesus does respond. He does not respond with anger or judgment or turning away from Mary in her deep pain. He meets her in it. Jesus actually doesn't even say any words at all initially. He just weeps. He weeps with her. And when he finally does speak, his next words are asking Mary to show him the depth of her pain. Jesus asks those surrounding Mary, where have you laid him? And in those words, he's asking Mary to take him to the source of her pain. In other words, help me see your pain. Help me feel it with you. Help me know and understand it. I don't know about you, but I want to serve a God like that. The picture of Jesus that we see in this passage is one of exuberant compassion. It's of a Savior who cares enough about his people and his friends to sit down with them in their pain and to feel it with them. And I know this probably sounds crazy, but it's in this moment in the story, in the deep, 
dark darkness of pain that I actually begin to understand resurrection. Because for resurrection to truly happen, death needs to happen first. There's a part of me that wants to leave the sermon there <laughs> because it just feels true to me to stay in this place for a minute. And it feels true to name that even in our sorrow, even in pain, even in death, God is with us. And that itself is radical good news, which what makes me want to follow Jesus to the ends of the world. But the story doesn't end there. Perhaps before Mary is ready to move from mourning and anger to something else, Jesus himself moves. We already know that he sits with her in the pain, that he visits death, but his next act is to create healing and resurrection. It turns out that Jesus is not in the business of messing around. He first empathizes with the pain, he asks Mary to show it to him, and then he goes about his good resurrection work. Jesus goes to the tomb and he cries out, Lazarus, come out! And he comes out. And just like that, in a few short sentences, we hear that God makes resurrection happen. A few short sentences don't seem quite enough to describe the detail of this mystery and grandeur about life coming back after death. But just like that, Jesus does it. Jesus does it whether Martha and Mary are ready for it, whether the crowd's mind can understand what on earth just happened. Jesus brings about abundant life whether people are ready for it or not. What Jesus said to Martha was coming to fruition. I am the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in me, even when they die, will live. The promise that we have in baptism is that when we do die, God will raise us to new life, eternal life with God. This truly is good news and a divine mystery. It's comfort beyond pain, trials, aging, and medical diagnoses. It's comfort to us. I think of Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one, which states, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is this, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is good news. And the hope that we hold on to as Christians in moments terrible and good in the world. It's good news that I don't want to gloss over or take lightly. It's eternal good news of something in our future that we can hold on to with hope. In writing this sermon, I was thinking a lot about resurrection and what resurrection means. And while I do believe with all my heart that it is an eternal reality that we will receive someday. 
I cannot help but wonder if resurrection is also a process that we experience in smaller ways throughout our lifetime. Maybe death and resurrection is a process we go through often and even daily in our lives. I'm not, of course, talking of physical dying, but rather the moment in our life where great pain happens or something inside of us is hurting and needing help, and where in those moments God somehow in some mysteriously miraculous way creates new life out of ashes. I'm thinking of a friend that I chatted with this weekend. Um, he recently attended a storytelling event for a group of people who've experienced a lot of persecution in the world. And the, the theme of the storytelling event was this. They thought that they could bury us, but they did not know that we were seeds. There are moments in our life both in the daily life and in our spiritual lives, where perhaps we feel like we are buried or on the verge of death. I can probably give you a list of examples here, but I'm, I'm really hoping you know what I'm talking about without going into too much detail. We've all had these moments in our lives where we feel incredibly discouraged and disappointed, hurt, broken, despairing, angry with God or with the world. See, I believe in these moments in our life that a faithful response is perhaps to respond like Mary. Because we see in the story that Jesus is not afraid of pain and anger. That Jesus meets us in it and weeps with us. And then somehow, in some mysterious way, goes about the work of resurrection whether we are ready for it or not. As your pastor, I stand up here today telling you something you already know, that pain and disappointment and hurt are real. I know that you know this already. I'm not trying to say in this sermon that Jesus is going to show up tomorrow and magically make that pain go away. The fact is, I don't know what the process of resurrection is going to look like in your life. But I do know this with all my heart. That Jesus sits with you and weeps with you in the pain. And the trajectory of Jesus' life moves towards abundant life and resurrection. And there's nothing that can stop it from happening, not even the evil in this world or the pain in your own life. And so my prayer for you as your pastor is that you would be like Mary. Whether you're in the stage of asking Jesus out of disappointment or anger, Lord, where are you? Or if you're like Mary sitting and weeping with Jesus. Or if you're like Mary at the tomb, waiting with a halfway hope or skepticism whether new life can happen. Or, if you're like Mary, who has finally received it, the hope beyond hope that she had asked God for. I trust that Jesus' arms are big enough for you wherever you find yourself in the journey. 
and I trust that there are no better arms to hold you in your prayers. So be a resurrection people, a people that is not afraid of death but lives fully in the here and now. Be a resurrection people who is not afraid of the pain but moves toward God in it. Be a resurrection people that when new life does happen in you in ways big and small, you embrace it just as you would embrace a brother who has been raised from the dead. And may Jesus, who is present in it all, make you full of resurrection hope in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.